And um, Pastor Paul's going to give us an overview of it, but we're going to read today from 1 Peter 1, 1 through 21. So if you'll open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 1,854. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what, or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Dear Lord, I just thank you so much for your word and for the encouragement uh, 
that you give us through sanctification. And I pray that this morning, Lord, that your anointing will be upon Paul as he comes and speaks to us from your word, that um, you would speak through him, Lord, that his words would be your words and that your words would be his words and that you would give him great clarity of thought and of word in speaking this to, to us. And Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts to receive, not just ears to hear and minds to understand, but hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. So Lord, we're here to hear from you. Use your servant Paul for your glory. And speak to us, Lord, each one of us. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are entering in on looking at uh, First Peter, which I'm very excited to expound because this is, I think, a great book for us to consider uh, for the days that we're living in. It's a very practical book. It's concerned with living the Christian life among adverse circumstances sometimes, taking our responsibilities to God and the Lord Jesus seriously in the midst of trials very often and obstacles and problems and uh, things that get in our way and inconvenience us and sometimes uh, hurt us. It is not a book of, um, it's not a book that that gives us the the way out that we often, just as human beings, seek. But rather, it uh, is a book that tells us that in the midst of what we're going through, this is how our attitude needs to be. And having that advice is uh, is really, I think, much more helpful because what it does is it tells us to go in the way of Jesus Christ himself, who was a man of sorrows, who is uh, a person that was familiar with difficulties and sufferings because we're on our way to the country where we have our citizenship. Our citizenship, remember in the most important ways that can be stated, is in heaven. We are citizens of another world, another realm, a better kingdom. And so that's Peter's outlook as uh, he writes to the dispersion, as he calls them, throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And I was waiting for Steve to trip up on one of those names, and he didn't. He did a great job. Those are places that are in modern-day Turkey. Um, Back then, it was basically called Asia. It was the the kind of coverall name for it. Uh, But these were different uh, districts of uh, the western part, particularly, of Turkey, although Cappadocia is kind of in the middle. And uh, he calls these people 
sojourners or pilgrims there in verse 1, and he uses this term for dispersion. And uh, the word that he uses was normally used of Jews. And so there certainly is a possibility that he's writing here mainly to Jewish Christians in these uh, different scattered parts of the Roman Empire. And yet, of course, what he writes to them is applicable to us. We're scattered around as Christians, this town, that village, this city, this part of the countryside, and we mix with the majority who are always unbelievers, who are always those who have not accepted Jesus Christ, who do not believe that God has acted in Jesus Christ to save us, that we have uh, a responsibility to live our lives under the gaze of God and to not order our lives according to the dictates of the world. It means that uh, our evaluation of life, our understanding of what we're here for, our um, our acceptance of the basic themes that the world gives out, its messages and so on, is to be one of caution, always bringing what the world says back to what the Word of God says. And there's a good reason for that, and it's simply this. Not only do we live in the midst of uh, a majority who are, who are unbelievers and therefore do not base their values, do not base their uh, ambitions or their understanding of life on what the Bible says and what God says in it, but also because this world is ruled over temporarily by the prince of the power of the air, by Satan, the god of this age. Now, we don't, we don't want to be buying everything, therefore, that the world says to us and speaks to us, the values that the world has, if those values come from Satan. At the end of the day, what Satan wants to do is damn our souls. He wants us to take, he wants to take us with him to hell. He wants us to get us off the path of right thinking. He wants to get us off the path of righteousness. He wants to get us off the path of truth. And he wants to get us off the path of understanding that we've got a responsibility as individuals created in the image of God to respond correctly to truth. Truth is not just something that, uh, you know, we say, yeah, that's a fact, that's a fact. I know that piece of information. Just check off and go your own way. Truth is something that imposes itself and has an authority over us at all times. Truth is that which represents the character and the will of God every time that we meet it. And so First Peter is one of those places in the Bible that confronts us with the reality 
of living responsibly in the midst of an unbelieving world that is reigned over by the anti-God. It can be divided into um, different parts in, uh, in different ways. I've chosen to just divide the letter into three parts to keep it simple. But you can divide it easily into five parts as well. But I liked the, uh, the threefold um, delineations here. The first of all is from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 10. The main theme that comes through, although in various ways and various teachings, is Christian identity, who we are in this world and who we represent what we're connected to, and therefore how we're to view ourselves. It's very important that we understand who we are in Jesus Christ, and we keep telling ourselves who we are in Jesus Christ, especially when things get on top of us, or especially when the world just crowds around us, and we kind of lose who we are in the, in the fog that's created by the busyness of the world and the, and the voices that are all around us, the blizzard of signals that come our way. It's very important that we know this central truth of the fact that we are elect in God and that we are connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and therefore to the hope that that resurrection has brought for us. So Christian identity, we'll look at that in just a minute. Then the second portion from chapter 2, verse 11, through to chapter 4, verse 11, which is basically summed up in the uh, phrase individual Christian responsibility. Individual Christian responsibility. This is a big one because it's easy to get lost or to hide oneself in the crowd. It's easy to want to offload the responsibility to other people and to think that we can just get by as Christians without shouldering the things that God wants us to shoulder as servants of Christ. But we've each got something that Christ wants us to do. And it starts with the kind of people that he wants us to be. It always starts there. We want to bypass that bit. I know. I do too. I want to bypass the, uh, the things that I find hard. You know, to be holy, to be righteous, to be prayerful, to be someone who reflects the character of God in the world. I mean, if those, if those responsibilities weren't there, the Christian life would be so much easier, wouldn't it? But I'm afraid it is there. It's, it's, it's us being lights in the world. And we can't be lights in the world if we're not willing to be uh, Christ-like in our outlook. Now, what that looks like, we'll investigate as we go through, particularly in those chapters. And, of course, then there is collective Christian responsibility. As a church or churches, as a group of Christians, how do God's people present themselves to the world? How are they seen by the world? 
And how do we want the world to see us? Do we want the world to see us as uh, just a, uh, a religious aspect of the world, but kind of very much like the world in every other aspect? Or do we want the church to stand out as a city on a hill? Is the church to have different values, a different outlook, a different view, a different voice collectively? And that, of course, involves coming back to how we are as individuals, coming back to our identity in Christ, and then corporately coming together as a church and voicing that to the world. Not necessarily in a in-your-face kind of way, but just by being recognized by unbelievers as not having the same values and not having the same priorities as they do. We are on our way to somewhere better. I would say that uh, the key text, not that I'm I'm saying that uh, this is uh, the theme of the letter, but the key text to keep in mind is in chapter 2 and verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, or strangers and pilgrims in the old King James, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Sojourners and pilgrims. Sojourners are what? Those that come to a place, stay for a while, and then move on. They're on the way. Pilgrims. They're on the way to a certain destination. They know where they're going. You know that one of my favorite books is The Pilgrim's Progress, which uh, if you haven't read, then you better read it before you get to heaven. Otherwise, you might, you know... God might want to know why you haven't read that book. But Bunyan's allegory there, a very important book that, that tells us that we are to stay on the path. We know where we're going. We know what we're about. We know where we've come from. And the most important things, the most valuable things are before us. And therefore, we're watchful of things that come in and encroach or get in the way of that pilgrimage. And Peter uses that idea, of course, in verse 1 and, of course, in that verse that I've just read out. So having said that, then let's dive into a few passages which bring out these, uh, these themes in 1 Peter. First of all, In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, down to verse 6, the apostle says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith in salvation, ready to reveal it in the last time. Because it's one sentence. And boy, is it packed. It's 
packed with a great deal of important truth that you're not supposed to just kind of speed away once you've read those verses and you go on to the others. It's packed with all kinds of things that we are to unpack. And of course, my job this morning is not to unpack them for us. We're going to do that in the ensuing messages, Lord willing. But just to say that there is a great deal that can be packed into just a few sentences, or even one sentence, be it a run-on sentence or not, which orients us as Christians to where we need to be and what our outlook is to be. We don't need to read. You know me, you've seen, some of you have seen my library. I've got a bunch of big tomes there, yes? They'd be great. I mean, once you've read them, and it's great for holding your garage up or, or holding a door open. That's what Steve uses them for, holding a door open or something like that. Great big, thick books, okay? You don't need to read great big, thick books, though, in order to orient yourself to what God wants you to do. You can read one sentence. And as long as you're paying attention and as long as you're being prayerful, that's going to communicate a great deal of clarifying truth to you. I know there are parts of the Bible that don't quite do that. I think of parts of uh, First Chronicles, for example. You know, first ten chapters of First Chronicles. I mean, be honest. How many of you have really read each and every name in those ten chapters? I have, by the way, because I thought it would be a good idea to do it. But if you haven't, I understand. There are parts of the Bible that, of course, are there. They play their part, the genealogies, and they, they're there, and they, they are inspired, and they're there to show certain lineages and some, certain descendances, and there are also other passages which talk about the dimensions of the tabernacle or the dimensions of the temple or the dimensions of Ezekiel's temple in there. There are all kinds of woes against this city and that country and so on in the prophets. And sometimes we might uh, want to skip over those passages. Not that uh, I recommend doing it, but I understand that we might want to do it. But we must not treat passages or books like First Peter in that way. We need to understand very carefully, very, very clearly, that a great deal of practical, life-giving truth resides in just a few words. He speaks about the abundant mercy of God in verse 3. He speaks about everything being delivered to us through Christ's resurrection. He talks about an inheritance, and not just an inheritance that, that you know, we can spend up and, and, get, and, and uh, fritter away, or that, you know, the, the country's inflation can gobble up, or some investment bank can destroy, but a, an eternal, undefiled, incorruptible inheritance that God has for us. He talks about the fact that we, as joined to the resurrection, are kept 
kept what by? Our own good works by our own uh, merits? No, I mean, that's not what got us saved in the first place, and it's not going to keep us saved either. But kept by the power of God. Just think about that. Kept by the power of God. Well, if the power of God is operative in our lives right now, then whatever we're going through, whatever we're facing, we have the resources to deal with it because of the power of God that is taking care of us. And in verse 9, he speaks about the end of it all, receiving the end of your faith, the end of this pilgrimage, pilgrimage the salvation of your souls. So you see, for, for Peter, salvation, the way that he uses it, is the consummation of our pilgrimage, the end of our lives here. Receiving our glorified bodies, receiving a, uh, a soul that is completely cleansed from all sin, seeing God as he is, knowing him as he knows us. That's what he means by salvation. Paul, of course, in his epistles, he talks about uh, that transaction very often of believing on Jesus Christ for the salvation of your souls. That he died for your sins, he rose again for your justification, you believe on him, God grants you forgiveness and everlasting life on that basis. And of course, that is the gospel that is absolutely essential that you believe that, because if you don't believe that, then you do not receive what Peter is talking about, the end of your faith, which is full salvation in the kingdom of God, where you wave goodbye forever to all of your troubles, all of your pains, all of your sorrows, all of your griefs, all of your confusions, and you can finish the, the list off. Whatever is bugging you or whatever is trying to pull you down would pull you down no longer. In chapter 1 and verse 13, we have the therefore. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, his second coming. In other words, have, a, have an outlook which looks to the future, looks to the return of Christ. Let the return of Christ and the rewards that he brings be the main determining factor of the decisions that you make today, of your outlook. Don't be like the fool who just looks generally out at the future. No, look at the one thing in the future that is certain. Look at that great change that Christ will bring about. Then aim for that. In chapter 2, verse 1, laying aside all malice, 
all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Of course, we'll expound that passage, but this is not saying that it's okay to stay a baby. It is not okay to stay a baby. As, this is a simile, as newborn babes, just as newborn babes want milk, you desire the word of God in that same way. In order to grow. Do you want to grow as a Christian? Do you want to mature as a Christian? Or do you want to stay where you are? So we'll be examining that. You see, our Christian identity is bound up in responsibilities. We are different because we are saved. We are part of God's family We are connected to the resurrection. We're kept by the power of God. And so in view of that, there are certain things that we must do. So this brings us to the second point, individual Christian responsibility. I've already read chapter 2 and verse 11, which talks about as, as sojourners and pilgrims, but it doesn't just stop with describing us as pilgrims in this life. It says that we therefore must abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. We have a duty, a responsibility to watch our lives. And we know that we have to watch all the time. It's constant, because if we don't, what happens? We very easily retrogress, don't we? We very easily go back into the flesh start to have the same values of the world, start to uh, have anger or, you know, all of these sinful inclinations that we thought that we were, you know, we got the better of and, well, they were there, they were there and they kept with us all along. The only way of keeping ahead of them, as it were, is to focus on the Lord, have that pilgrim mindset. And then, chapter 2, verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters. Chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. And I might as well add chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. What's this thing about submission? Peter seems to like the word. Modern Westerns don't like the word very much. If we're going to Get on board with Peter. We need to have a submissive mindset. We need to understand who we're to be submissive to, what that submission should look like, at least have a general idea of what that looks like, and understand that it it touches upon all of us, whether we be children, whether we're wives, whether uh, we are, because we're slaves in this 
this age, of course, in the Roman age, and we'll, we'll deal with that. Whatever that may be, we need to face it not arrogantly, not with a you-can't-tell-me attitude or I'm-my-own-person attitude, but rather with a submissive attitude. Jesus himself submitted himself, didn't he? Submitted himself to the scorn and the humiliation of the world. Submitted himself to death on our behalf. And still submits himself, even as the exalted Lord, to the work that he has to do to bring us all to salvation, final salvation. It's all his work. Therefore, God's power works through, in many a, a instance, submission. If we're to fight off the devil, we need to submit to God. If we're to have a good marriage, the wives must submit to the husband. That's not a very popular message today, is it? If servants are to have a reward with God, they need to submit to their masters. And, of course, we can appropriate that and say, in the workforce, you might have a bad boss. You might have a difficult job. This may not be your dream job. This may not be what you chose for yourself. Well, welcome to the world. Submit yourself to what is uh, needed and submit yourselves to the government also. Verses 13 through 17. We'll see what that means. And then there's this collective Christian responsibility that we have, which starts at chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. You know, when I get knocked sideways by a fiery trial, I'm always asking why that happened. What's going on here? I didn't order that. That wasn't part of the plan. I want to get back on track, and yet you're sidetracked, sometimes for considerable periods of time. We are to have this Christian outlook to what's going on. Rather than saying, oh, it's my bad luck, or I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, of course we may have been for some reason, but we are to view it can I say the word theologically? We are to view our trials, our sufferings, our difficulties in a theological way so that we can make sense of them, so that they have value, so that they actually earn something for us when all of these trials are past. Verse 19 of uh, chapter 4 says, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good 
as to a faithful creator. There's work to be done, and it's always to be positive. It's always to be good work, even in the midst of difficulty. By the way, those who say Christianity is a crutch, have they read first, Peter? Doesn't sound much of a crutch to me. And then finally here at chapters, chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, speaking to the younger people, but then says, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. This does, this does not contradict what he'd said about the, the different submissions um, in chapter 3 and chapter 2. But none of us are to see ourselves as superior to anyone else. Be clothed with that hard word, that, that uh, characteristic that is most uncharacteristic of the world. That weak word which is demands so much strength from us. Humility. Strangers, pilgrims, full of responsibilities, submission, and that is not possible without humility. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And sometimes that exaltation is going to be when you see him. But what an awful thing if that exaltation is not what it would have been because of our refusal down here in this life to humble ourselves. We are called to a pilgrim life. There's a reason for that. Because this world is run by our enemy and God's enemy. And the people in power are God's enemies. And the different ideas, particularly in our modern world, that are so politically important that we're supposed to subscribe to without questioning. These things are absolutely contradictory to the way that we were created and what creation is to mean. And therefore, we are strangers and we are to view ourselves as pilgrims not looking around at the allurements of Vanity Fair, but looking ahead to the celestial city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us as we go through this book to get the most out of it, to apply it to our lives, help it to, uh, to bless us in our thinking and our emotions, and to give us... Lord, a reason for keep go, keeping going, knowing, Father, that you are overseeing what happens to us, that nothing that happens to us is event of no value. Help us, Lord, to 
um, count the many blessings that accrue to us because we are your children. Things that Peter describes. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that your spirit will guide us and help us in the years or the months or for however long you have us here. But the goal is in sight. And we thank you, Lord, that we have the victory in Jesus. Amen.